Welcome back, folks, to episode 18 of the Running Man Self-Regulation Skills and Self-Improvement Project podcast with your host, me, Dr. Armando Dominguez, Ph.D. in Health Psychology, licensed professional counselor, and also an adjunct professor at a local community college. And uh, what we're going to be discussing today has to do with perceptual error, and uh, there are several terms that we'll be using uh, to discuss this, but first I want to start with the term uncanny valley. That is something that if you pump it into Google, it'll give you a whole lot of information. And uh, some of the descriptions are rather fascinating. But uh, the robotist, I believe is the correct term, Masaharu Mori in the 1970s coined the term, 1970 actually, uh, it's been a while, whenever uh, robotics started to hit the scene and Japan was starting to lead in that area. And also, uh, he posited, this was his concept of the uncanny valley that occurs whenever technology starts to match, mimic, or mirror humanity. You've probably seen videos on YouTube, or even I remember years back um, seeing a video on, on MTV whenever I was a young teenager, and that was a Herbie Hancock, and you see all these little robotic things that that have eyes and hands and teeth that are they look like little disembodied things moving but there's a robot moving them making them look almost in a distorted sense human life but not quite and that sense of distance whenever we observe a part of ourselves like looking in a mirror recognizing the eyes or hands but that's not human but how are they moving this sort of thing at the perceptual level we know that it's not us but we also know it's different. And what uh, Maury posited was that the uncanny valley was the very beginning of, if we were to measure it, the shock and revulsion that we get at seeing something that looks human-like, a simulacrum, something that would be similar but not quite, something's not quite there. It's a little off. It doesn't look natural, but it looks close enough. And it makes us uneasy, and that's going to be a spike in the emotion of the sense that we have a rise in that reaction, and and revulsion was the very first thing that came up. But uh, then after that, the valley is from the sine wave that we would see, or rather the drop from the, the spike, to over time and being immersed and being exposed to such things that we have that drop in emotion to where it becomes more an at ease, this is a day to day kind of like we see our microwaves now and it's no big deal it's an everyday thing and it becomes an acceptance it becomes almost background and then the rise wherever we get the other end of the valley is not only where the technology uh, gets better where it starts resembling human humanity people more so that it's almost indistinguishable and that's where the rise of emotion comes up to where it becomes almost preferable and accepted the the very thing that we are fearing now with AI, supposedly, getting so out of control that we're going to be controlled by it. So there is also that rise and fall again to the point of revulsion after the acceptance because we become vulnerable or something. But uh, this isn't what we're going to discuss, but this is part of it because the uncanny valley has to do with the perception of things, but also belief quality. And whenever we see things that resemble but aren't close, um, yet we make a narrative jump in seeing the similarity in things that are in our, in our environment. We judge those things as either approachable, avoidable, once again, the hedonic response, very basic, but also something that 
um, changes how we see things and how we interact with things in their environment based on how similar they are. This isn't so far from camouflage. The butterflies that have the large eyes that resemble an, an owl's eyes um, keep them from being eaten because if they resemble the predator, those that prey on them, the insectivorous bugs, not bugs, but rather birds that eat the, the bugs, won't eat them or they're more likely to survive by virtue of evolution, which uh, is an amazing thing to think about. So why is this important? to self-regulatory skills. Here in a moment, it'll become very evident, but let's leave this incomplete for now, and we'll move forward with some of the terms we're going to be using relative to the uncanny valley response. This is when we see something that resembles human or something person or something human-like, almost like those silicone human-like dolls that are so human-like that if you were to see them in a picture next to a person, you probably can't tell the difference unless you're there in person. Um, that kind of similarity where we're coming from the very valley and going back to the peak again to the acceptance, um, th those have to do with how we perceive, but also a quality of belief that rises from that. And uh, it could be an erroneous belief. So perceptual error can lead to belief error and therefore an error in action that uh, depending on how strongly you believe, we may be doing something wrong as a result. So some of the terms that we're going to be using, taking a little drink of coffee here, or the term pareidolia. Pareidolia is something that usually is attributed to having mental illness because these are things that are usually reported by people that are either using hallucinogens, uh, also if they have uh, extreme cases of psychosis, um, schizophrenia, this sort of thing, and some, some cases bipolar or psychotic features. And we're not going to be discussing and, and throwing people under the bus if they struggle with these diagnoses. These are just some of the reported symptoms that they experience. Once again, symptoms are things that are reportable to somebody else that you experience, but no one can tell you're experiencing them because it's not a, an external sign that shows discomfort um, or you being able to see that, but rather it's going on internally. So Pareidolia is more a symptomatic quality. The next term that's not so far from pareidolia in a way, but uh, pareidolia, uh, I forgot to define, has to do with how we may see, let's say there's a pattern on the floor, and we're experiencing, in this case, just to make the point, psychosis, or we're experiencing things wherever patterns start to take shape, they may look like faces. Uh, if we're in a very negative state, they could be particularly negative, devilish, demonic, or dangerous, or things that may be moving or morphing into shape, or it's not maybe morphing per se, but uh, that sounds almost phantasmagoric, and that can go on in your mind as well. But uh, wherever we start seeing things that may make meaning, it, often it takes uh, the form of faces, faces that are negative, sometimes smiling, sometimes things that resemble like creatures or animals that may be mythical, legendary, this sort of thing. So there may be an imaginative quality tied to that, and there are many artists that report having this pareidolic quality and that they can see these patterns. And more often, if we have somebody point out what they're seeing, we can see them too, but they may be seeing them with a greater degree or depth. Um, as there are some differences in how we see, most of us are very largely within the same bell curve visual but um, 
just to make a point of this is that uh, there are certain women, I think one in four women, have like a fourth uh, color cone that otherwise most people don't have in men and women. Both most of us have, have a trichromatic eye that uh, within those three colors that we can perceive, we can see all the colors of our so-called rainbow that we're able to see in the visible light spectrum. So that means there are some people that can actually see a little further into the light spectrum. I've talked to a few Poo folks, and they poo-poo this, but the fact of the matter is it's in the science. If you look in the medical journals, there are some differences in, in uh, eyes and cones, and um, the rods, of course, make up the largest percentage of um, our eye in the sense that we perceive. I believe it's about nine, nine, nine to one rods to every one cone because perceptual motion and also what, uh, where is a thing exists in space versus what it is so I can label it. Uh, where is it's more important because if I can avoid the stick, know where it's at. Doesn't matter that I can call it a stick. Um, if I if if I say hey that's a stick and I get smacked by it and die, that's not a good thing. That's a cone process, but it's also a slower process and it's not meant to perceive motion. But pareidolia has to do with sometimes the shapes that we bring about, and there may or may not be a neurological error there. Uh, if it's drug induced, more than likely there's some misfire going on. Um, but whenever it has to do with things along the lines of mental illness, it could be morphological having to do with how the brain may have developed at some point. But um, neuroimaging uh, does not necessarily give us a really clear story on that. So the next term that we're going to be using is going to be more so a higher cognitive process. Pareidolia is perceptual, so this is a lower brain neural structure that's firing. But uh, anthropomorphism. This is more a concept of whenever we start uh, seeing things and adding human-like qualities to them. So the way we interpret them in our narrative, whenever we see a teddy bear and we tend to attribute human-like qualities to it, or whenever, let's say, an animal is acting in a way and we say that they have you know, certain human-like behaviors, we're trying to attribute and make sense of the behaviors they're making based on what we consider uh, similar in, in human behavior. Uh, also, there are certain things that if we look at Japanese culture, and this is not denigrating them in any way, but if you follow any kind of anime, the yokai are traditionally, since almost time immemorial with them, because the, the Shinto and the animist background, often that animism was a very anthropomorphic quality, but one of great respect for spirit of place where you might have seen pictures of the umbrella with an eye and a foot and that umbrella is a very sad umbrella because the one that was left behind at the station and therefore it has a sense of purpose but also its purpose is not being fulfilled because it got left behind this sort of thing and respecting things and using them to their fullest capacity kind of is spoken within that belief but there are a number of things that are yokai that uh, speak of this anthropomorphic lifelike living human quality, even rocks, this sort of thing. So it's almost boring on animist. Um, and you don't necessarily have to consider it a spiritual animism, but a sense of uh, attributing those qualities of life and living to things. So that's not a hard description, but uh, that has to do with the progression from something like a pareidolic to an anthropomorphic uh, thought process. And uh, the pareidolia isn't a thought process in the sense of I'm thinking this on purpose, but rather it's one that's perceptual and it may be perceptual error. And therefore, 
uh, I'm drawing a parallel here. So what we have to consider whenever we're communicating with folks and we're running into stressful events or maybe experiencing a stressful event is that there's a very high probability of having um, perceptual error in the sense that we may think we see something. Well, it may not be a perceptual error per se at, at the onset, but rather the interpretation of that perception can become a thinking error or a feeling belief error. Depending on how fast it is, if we remember that presentation of any kind of stimulus outside of us at 150 to 300 milliseconds, that still preserves our ability to tell the difference. Is it dangerous to me? Is it friend? Is it foe? Are they somebody I recognize? Can I trust them? Or is it the tiger and it's trying to bite my butt and I'm the bologna sandwich and man, he looks hungry. Within the 150 to 300 millisecond range, we're able to differentiate whether or not it's friend, foe, dangerous or not. If it's a very quick presentation, and 150 to 300 milliseconds is incredibly fast, but if you get closer to the range of 100 milliseconds or less, and that is a flash of an instant faster than blink rate, we by default will determine it to be a negative. We'll interpret it to be a bad thing. Interpret it something that may need defense against or run from. Definitely no friend and befriend is just going to be gone, and I'm out of here. So whenever we're experiencing things that pop up very quickly and we have to leave and we have the good fortune of being able to leave and recalibrate and think about what happened once we're in the safe space, so to speak, we may or may not have all the information. We may remember more the, the action of getting out of the way or the very image presenting and it seems like a blur, but yet I still have the fear and the terror response maybe going on. And once we're able to think about it and slow think about it, slow think being higher uh, prefrontal cortex process, then we may develop a narrative that may be based on how I felt and the bits that I saw that may or may not have been what I thought it was. We may start trying to make sense of it because if it's an ambiguous bit of information, it doesn't sit well within us. We have to shape it into something that's going to make sense. Now, can we leave it at the level of ambiguity? And then we focus more on what happened. Yes. Is this the beginnings of where somebody could start telling a tall tale not meaning to? Or if you ask them, they say, well, that's what I saw. Then we have this embedded, entrenched, I saw this. You weren't there. And that belief quality is almost protective. We try to make sense of things more so because I experienced something terrifying. And we probably don't want to tie it to something that was ridiculous or not. Even though there are opportunities in a human life to wherever we can say, oh, haha, that was just a stick, it wasn't a snake. And um, that's okay. But why the parallels between pareidolia, how we perceive things, that we may draw conclusions about stuff because of the shapes on the floor or on the wall, and anthropomorphism, just like the yokai, there, there is definitely uh, an attribution that we give. We give these attributes in our mind to these things to make sense of them. But also, there's a quality in pareidolia that whenever we see things and we see shapes, but yet they're jumping out at us, that there's something that tells us there's something not right. And often, once again, this is a drug-induced uh, state.
not always, but in most cases, I would say that that's what it is based on my experience clinically. But also, there are those that can actually shift how their eyes see things in the sense that they're adjusting what their, their clear lens in their eye can do. They have uh, control of that. And we do have control of how we focus on things. And they may be able to bring things into focus or out of focus. I've spoken to a number of people that are very uh, incredibly gifted, uh, not very, but incredibly gifted uh, graphic artists. And the way they see things, they're able to see more colors, more details. And it may have to do with how their uh, clear lens in their eye works or how it functions. Now, whenever we think about the anthropomorphic, well, what did I see? And what does it mean? Often we'll attribute things, uh, lifelike or human-like quality, especially whenever we have fear, because we get very simplified. We're not taking it and making the best of reasoning to take the fear out of it, because when we remember it as a recording in our mind, so to speak, we still have that fear quality doesn't matter what you call that thing that elicited that response. It doesn't have to make sense. But if it's an ambiguous thing, we, at the higher level of mind, have to try to make sense of it. And we may call it something, say it's something, maybe even say it was an alien or, or UFO, UAP. I'm not saying those things don't exist, but I'm not saying that they do either. But often we have cognitive error as a result of perceptual error based on how fast things go. The error wasn't in the fact that we perceived something as dangerous when we got out of the way. That was not an error. That was excellence. Excellence in execution got you out of there and safe. Made safe. You got away. You're no longer the bologna sandwich. That's a, that's a success. But the perceptual error, more so on the side of post-perception interpretation that may have given us a belief based on faulty data, because we didn't interpret it right. We didn't hang around long enough to get all the data. So we, we have an incomplete picture often. And sometimes we have a chance to shore that up and go back. And and I don't like to use the term closure because I don't think there is such a thing. We get past things and move on. But I don't believe that there, there is such a thing as true closure. And uh, we're not doing a therapeutic session here. But definitely when it comes to making sense of stuff, ambiguities don't make sense. But uh, also, whenever we're thinking about ambiguities, ambiguities, whenever we have something that's particularly novel or unknown, it can be exciting. We're having a good time versus one that's negative. Um, we often will err on the side of adventure and excitement because of the promise or the potential of a positive unknown occurring. And we tend to not want to think about the negatives when we don't know what could happen. Not unlike the story uh, in the movie Return of the Jedi, the original, wherever Luke goes into the tree and Yoda tells him, well, you don't need that. You don't have to take your lightsaber, right? But he puts it in there. He didn't trust him. Who's going to trust the little green guy from Dagobah, right? At least at that point to the story. He was very trustworthy after the fact, of course. But whenever he went in there, that sense of foreboding, that stepping into the darkness and the unknown, that in the hero's journey, like Joseph Campbell speaks, is the challenge in which he finds, not himself, but rather his capacity to overcome, her capacity to overcome, 
the hero's journey is part of that. And sometimes the anthropomorphic, those things that we give life to, the living unknown, when maybe it's just a factual thing versus an entity of sorts. And whenever we're in the dark, the paradolic effect happens in us in a sense that we don't really call it what it is, but often we see shapes and shadows. We see things that look like motion when in actuality it's our night vision or peripheral vision that's trying to pick up as much detail and differential and, and occulted light as possible that may seem like shapes and things that are scary, maybe even faces. And that's, of course, assuming there is nothing there, but what if there is? That's why your eyes are so sensitive to pick up the what if there is versus the what if there isn't, where it's going to be trying to make shapes out of stuff just to make sense of things. It's calibrating. Our neurology is calibrating. So these things aren't too far from each other. One, at the perceptual level, pareidolia, and anthropomorphism at the higher cognitive, making sense of stuff and attributing things along the lines of qualities of life or living to things, whether it be a rock or an umbrella, uh, if you like the yokai. Um, but these are important things to pay attention to because they can also lead to, once again, cognitive error. And it doesn't mean that I have a problem processing things, but rather in the belief and the emotional sense that we may develop as a result of lack of information, lack of evidence, also lack of understanding. So how is this important to self-regulatory skills, which I asked earlier? We uh, are going to answer that. If we understand that often, depending on how things are, we tend to judge very quickly what people have done, what they've experienced. And we label them as an experiencer or as somebody that's crazy or those thoughts are nuts and who would think like that. We tend to separate ourselves from them as if, and once again, whenever we talk about overvaluing our higher cortex, uh, as if somehow we're better than, as if we're somehow out of the realm or range of being able to experience such things as well. We're human. We have very similar perceptual systems. We're not so different within the human realm that we can't have terror or fear, unknown or novelty that can trick us. And then I've known very many people that are super highly rational, extremely rational. Sometimes there's not a whole lot of fun to be around. Just joking. But it can make it a little harder to talk about things that are a little more fluid, fluent, and flippant. In typical everyday speech, you can have fun and talk. But when you start saying things based on beliefs that aren't necessarily founded, boy, I tell you what, our rational, reasonable folks, they will shoot those out of the water. So if you want to have fun conversations, a lot of times the paradolic and the anthropomorphic are rather helpful in colorizing what it is that we experience as a communication. And it lends itself to imaginative qualities when we discuss if it's in a more positive sense. But also it can lend itself to a really good story, a spooky story, something that scares you, something that makes you worry. And that industry, making stories, YouTube, uh, also podcasts, wherever people are telling stories of the unknown and the uncanny and the frightening, the scary and, and the weird, tend to attract many followers, many listeners, many viewers, because we want to get things that will take us out of our day-to-day -day world and take us into a level of perception and belief and experience that is beyond going to our nine-to-five and doing what we do as a regular human being sometimes. And uh, 
that's okay. I certainly do it myself, and I, I, I love a good mystery. I like good science fiction, and I love movies that have to do with time, time distortion, and time travel. Those, to me, are just exceedingly fascinating, and I'm always on the lookout for those. So, is it always about entertainment value? Well, no. No, not at all. But as far as self-regulatory skill, the importance is knowing that there are times that when we experience things that are beyond our ability to make the best of sense, we have to be patient with ourselves. We have to be patient with others whenever we're maybe supporting someone or listening to somebody, really listening. What are they saying? It's not so much to question and criticize, but rather to support and listen because they may have had an experience, a real one. And it may have pushed their perceptual capacity to its limit. That will give you some details that may or may not be beyond a good description, good narrative. But yet when you ask them, well, what went on? And the best they can give you is, uh, I don't know. I just remember I saw this, but I don't know how to describe it. Just know that they've gotten to the level of brain, the wordless level of mind, actually. That doesn't speak in words. That's prefrontal higher cortical structure, but rather its language is in perception, what we see, feel, taste, touch, smell, that sort of thing. And being able to develop that word bridge so we can't communicate may take some time. And if we have this sort of patience and time with others and ourselves, we'll develop rapport and communication in a good way. And it can help us regulate whether or not we have a stressful response to what we're hearing. Because, oh, that's just a bunch of hooey, that's a bunch of crap, versus, okay, I'm listening to you. And suspending judgment. Taking that third-person perspective in the sense of no judgment, just listening. Or second-person perspective, and, well, I wonder what they're going through, especially if they're kind of stressed or worn out. And maybe even taking the third-person perspective with ourselves, we're going to do a big presentation, and all of a sudden I'm nervous and anxious, and then you have to talk to yourself. Give yourself the pep talk. Not in the I am feeling anxious, I am feeling scared. Notice the I word and identity and and basically a designation of identity with that feeling, but rather, wow, you're feeling kind of stressed, but you'll be okay talking to yourself, good self-talk. This is where this becomes very useful in identifying that sometimes we have to be gentle with ourselves, kind with ourselves, patient with ourselves, but also understanding with ourselves, and know that if we exhibit these things towards ourselves and others, it tends to smooth things out and encourage good communication because then your body language and your tones will be authentic and genuine, and you don't have to think it into being. You just kind of emulate it. You embody it. And that's part of the self-regulatory skill of understanding the paradola, the anthropomorphic as a process when we stress, and also understanding the uncanny valley, what it is that we experience whenever we see things that are particularly human-like but not quite, that might bug us out, and know that there is a fear response, there is a sense of loss, and even though we haven't lost anything, there's an expectation or prediction of and we have to know that that takes us out of our right now and puts us in the right then and may even have us in the right back then. The remember when. And it takes a whole lot of living out of our immediate moment. So this is a quality enhancer, understanding that how we perceive can be impacted not only by our level of stress, but our emotion. It can be impacted by 
how I see things. If they're particularly ambiguous, if I don't have enough detail, and we tend to be rather quick to jump to a conclusion so we can get to the next, as if we're in a hurry to make a judgment about something, just to get it out of the way. One rather important detail that I almost failed to mention was the fact that whenever people are under distress, it is really hard for people to hard focus directly at somebody in somebody's face. Often you'll be having glances uh, from the side, looking ensconcely at something, which means you're not using your central focal vision, those cones that interpret color and depth perception, but rather from the rods of perceived motion. And if you see things just at the periphery of that, or even to, to our sides, um, we see things a little more flat. If you have somebody do an exercise with you, I will show you one to help you keep from misinterpreting uh, facial body language, this sort of stuff. Uh, look forward towards the wall and have someone sitting to your side, but you're able to still see them once you turn your head towards them where they can smile and make frowns, this sort of stuff, and then look back at the wall and have them to your peripheral, more so closer to your shoulder, where you can still see their face, and you realize the face features are a lot more flat, a little less distinct and detailed, a little less depth. Now, if you have them doing a Mona Lisa smile, just literally corners up, and notice the difference, how you're still able to perceive how the eyes move, without looking at them or turning your eyes towards them, but allow yourself to see the wall to the front and also to, to the sides, without having to turn your head left and right or looking left and right. You'll be able to pick up the signals. Your eyes are very sensitive. But also you may note that flatness makes things feel a little creepy, almost a little distance. And this is that uncanny valley effect where it looks like somebody that you knew that was very human. All of a sudden it's like, well, like them, but it's not like what I'm used to seeing. So there's definitely a difference and there's an emotional load that results as a part of that. Now, if you have them smile showing their teeth, you will note that it'll look rather creepy. It looks almost like horror show creepy in some, but some it just makes you feel uneasy because it's that very teeth quality that starts firing our capacity to determine whether something is threatening or not, like the dog is bearing teeth. Our friend is now bearing teeth, and they may be genuinely authentically smiling because they have a sweet smile, but when you're not looking directly at them and pick it up at the corner of your peripheral vision, you note that it's very odd, it's very different, and it makes you have gut feels as a result. Your body has feelings that are by flight related. So this was a very important detail. And this is also part of the self-regulatory skill. Whenever you can tell that you're taking in information, know that it will determine threat or not. And, and that's okay. That's what it's supposed to do. But in a more socialized, safer setting, if you do this, uh, know that unless we're looking at somebody directly, the socializing friend and befriend making eye contact is very soothing, very comforting, because we get those cues and we can interpret, and we get that little oxytocin bond that occurs and makes us feel the warm fuzzies. Oh, that's my buddy, and that's my baby, and that's my puppy, that sort of thing. But whenever you have those to the periphery, you understand that you're actually tying into those survival response programs, that even though I know cognitively that's my friend, but when you see them from the side, they don't look exactly like my friend. They're about 95%. But that part of your brain doesn't do math and can't tell the difference. It's just there to determine if there's threat or not. So keeping that in mind, tie this together with the ideas of the paradolic, anthropomorphic, and also the uncanny valley. There's definitely a response there. And all of these three things have to do with a, a perceptual quality, interpretive 
uh, error of the perception and also beliefs born of that very narrative resulting from the feelings that we get, even if they're accurate or not. So with that, we're going to close this discussion for today. And I will tell you, thank you for listening, passing some time with me this morning during the holiday. And also, I'm really enjoying recording in the mornings versus late evenings, how I usually do. But on top of that, I want to tell you, thank you for your time again. And uh, follow, like, and share. If there's somebody you think you can benefit, that they can benefit rather from this podcast, please pass it on. Let them know. I'm encouraging you to do that because I'd like to see this podcast go further globally and uh, certainly want to say hi to all those that are listening in other countries. Thank you very much for your time. And I'm hoping maybe one day we'll get a chance to visit in person and have some visit time talking about such things as psychology, neurology, among other things. But uh, for now, we're closing it. Take care and all the best and walk well.